0: Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Welcome to the first round of the playoffs it's gonna be so much fun with timberwolves and grizzlies and jazz and mavericks and bucks and heat and celtics and nets and all kinds of fun matchups bet online is your one-stop shop for all your gambling needs during the first round use our promo code believe b-l-e-a-v to get a 50 percent bonus on your first deposit when you sign up with the link in the description to this episode, bet Online, where the game starts.
1: Oh yeah,
0: Everybody! It's time for the memes of the weekend podcast here on the Take It Easy podcast here on the Believe Podcast Network. Welcome in, everybody. I hope you all are having a fantabulous Monday. Hope you enjoyed playoff basketball. I am so freaking excited for the next two months. Like I said on Wired Up this week, it is a marathon. You got to make sure when you're watching the NBA playoffs not to peak too early and get overexcited about the Minnesota Timberwolves like we did on Wired Up yesterday or talking about how the Philadelphia Sixers kicked ass against the Toronto Raptors. You got to be careful when you're doing that type of analysis. And also, the New Orleans Pelicans are going to get crushed by the Phoenix Suns. That's the other thing that you can conclude from this weekend. But still, it's a long, long road. By the time we finish this week, there will only have been one more Nets and Celtics game played. So, like, it's a long run. We're going to do more analysis stuff. We're going to eulogize some teams. We're going to do all that. And we're going to preview the playoffs now that we're even just a game in with our friend Juju Talk Sports from the Slump Buster podcast. We also talked to the host of the Locked On Nets podcast and the Locked On Suns podcast. So. You can get some talk on those teams. I hope you enjoyed the first round of games this weekend. We're going to get to all of that. We got to start off, though, by talking about something that piqued my interest and inspired me to write a quick little synopsis of this weekend because we had the return of the Duncan Robinson game. And it happened in the Heat and Hawks game. Clearly, that's who Duncan Robinson plays for. But the thing that was fun was getting to relive some of our 2020 days jokes that we had with Cam from DSD and getting super into the NBA bubble and all of that stuff. We got to relive it all over again because we got ourselves a Duncan Robinson game. What is a Duncan Robinson game? Well, for people who don't know, every playoff series that the Miami Heat play, you get one Duncan Robinson game. This has been a running joke since that bubble year where the Heat played a first round against the Pacers and then Giannis got hurt and they won the series against the Bucs. Then they upset the Celtics and went on that finals run where they played the Lakers as a super underdog and they lost in the series but they went to six games because Jimmy Butler had that crazy heroic bubble game where he's like leaning over in the famous photo. So the Miami Heat Every playoff series during that run basically got like one Duncan Robinson game. Duncan Robinson was going to shoot two for ten in the other games, and all of them were going to be three-pointers, but you get the one game where Duncan Robinson has seven three-pointers on eight attempts, and he's just absolutely cooking. And this came in the bubble, by the way. This was the bubble when all of this was going on, so the sight lines were better for shooters also. So every series you get the one Duncan Robinson game and the Heat felt so good about their ability to beat the Atlanta Hawks that they used up their Duncan Robinson game in game one just to make a statement to the rest of the league. Now I know they didn't intentionally do that, but it's like deep in your archives, you get to hit them with the Duncan Robinson game. I think it was game one or game two against the Lakers. When they used the Duncan Robinson game and they ended up losing the game when they used it. But against the Celtics, I think they won the Duncan Robinson game and that helped them win the six game series. That was weird because it was like, Bam Adebayo is going to have a thirty-point, thirty-point 10, ten rebound game. Tyler Hero is going to have a 38 point game in game six to close out the series. Everyone's going to have one crazy game and that's how we're going to beat the Celtics. So it was weird. But they used their Duncan Robinson game well. Against the Bucks. they used it, I think, in Game 1 last year. We made the Duncan Robinson game joke. They lost, and then they got kind of smacked out of the series pretty quick. I can't remember exactly, but they did use the Duncan Robinson game one time. Duncan Robinson finished Game 1 against the Hawks with a career playoff high 27 points, shooting 7 of 8 from 3-point range. And by the way, this happened in a game where they were up 30 at the end of the third quarter because Trey Young had his worst play- or worst game of his NBA career in game one of the playoffs. And it was super fun to watch Trey Young dismantle the Cleveland Cavaliers and dismantle the Charlotte Hornets because he's the person that feels like the closest thing we have to a true villain in the NBA. And I'm sure Morgan from Australia will have jokes about that when we talk to her. It's really, really interesting to watch it play out for Trey Young the way it has because he obviously he's made rivalries with the Knicks and that's the first thing we think of as we talked about with DSD. Knicks fans chanted F Trey Young at a Yankees game and he's making enemies in Cleveland as he bows goodbye to them and all that stuff like it's really, really fun and I'm really, really glad the Hawks are in the playoffs and against Miami he had his worst game of his career and this is what's going to happen when you're reliant on shooting but anyways that's enough serious basketball analysis in a game where Trey Young had eight points shot one for 12 from the field and 0 for 7 from the three-point line the Miami was going to win that game no matter what and they decided you know what Duncan we're going to unleash you now we're going to make a statement victory we're so confident that we're going to beat the Hawks in this series, as they should be. They're going to win that series in four or five games. We're so confident we're going to beat the Hawks that we're just going to unleash the Duncan Robinson game to put us up 30 points in our primetime 10 a.m. on the West Coast basketball game. And so for Duncan Robinson, I just want to talk about him real quick because we made the Duncan Robinson jokes But if we're going to invest in stakes and storylines of this NBA playoffs, let's talk about the Duncan Robinson storyline, because Duncan Robinson was an undrafted player from Michigan. He played D3 basketball. You might listen to his podcast because he's a white basketball player and all the white basketball players have podcasts from him to JJ Redick, like all the popular basketball players have podcasts or sorry, all the popular white basketball players have podcasts, but He does one thing really, really well, and that's shooting three-pointers. And the Miami Heat have kind of gotten the reputation, or at least I give them the reputation, of being a great-run organization because they develop players like Duncan Robinson. They find undrafted players or late-round picks similar to Bill Belichick, and they find very specific jobs for them to do. And that's kind of the reason why I think the Heat get the reputation of Heat culture and being a great organization, etc., etc. Miami got Duncan Robinson as an undrafted player. They got Tyler Hero with the 13th pick, and now he's a top 50 player in the league. Bam Adebayo, 14th pick, might be the best player on that team, Tier 3 star. Kendrick Nunn was undrafted. Max Struess was undrafted. Caleb Martin, who contributed big numbers for them this year, was picked up off waivers from the Charlotte Hornets. I can't remember if it was Caleb or Cody. I think Caleb's on the Miami Heat, but one of them is on the Heat. It's Caleb Martin, the Nevada twins of Eric Musselman, who became mortal enemies of the San Diego State Aztecs when I was in high school. And so Miami, uh, Max Struess, by the way, also undrafted player. So they find all of these dudes deep down their roster. And they find roles for them on the team, and they keep replacing them when the guys go out. So, like, for example, Hassan Whiteside was a second-round pick bouncing around the league, comes to Miami, becomes a $100 million player. James Johnson, undrafted player, gets to Miami, becomes a $68 million player. Duncan Robinson, undrafted, comes to Miami, $80 million player. And what's interesting is that Miami chose to give Duncan the five-year $80 million contract despite their ability to develop other Duncan Robinsons like the Heat have a better chance of finding another Duncan Robinson than they do finding another Bam Adebayo or finding another Jimmy Butler or finding another Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson's only getting 16 million a year which isn't awful relative to your salary cap it's like the same amount Will Barton is getting it's interesting that Miami decided this guy as our seventh best player is still so valuable that we want to pay him a mid-level NBA contract, and those usually don't work out, especially in the boomer bust salary cap system of the NBA, but they decided for the time being, Duncan is a really, really viable weapon, even if he's basically the Sammy Watkins of the NBA, which is I mean, Sammy Watkins signed with the Packers, so the Packers want to have the three Sammy Watkins games. I've been making the three Sammy Watkins games since he was on the Kansas City Chiefs during that Super Bowl run. Literally, that means as long as we've had this podcast, I've been making the Sammy Watkins game joke, which is Sammy Watkins gives you three games every year. You don't know when the three games are going to happen. You don't know how the three games are going to happen, but he's going to give you 150 yards And two or three touchdowns, three times a year, and the other 13 games you're going to forget that he plays for the team that he plays for. I preface this by saying, do you remember who Sammy Watkins played for last year? Does anyone remember? I will give you a multiple choice option here. Was it the Kansas City Chiefs? Was it the Baltimore Ravens? Or was it the Indianapolis Colts? The answer is the Baltimore Ravens. Sammy Watkins was a Baltimore Raven last season, and Sammy Watkins is now a Green Bay Packer. And they're going to get the three Sammy Watkins games just like every team gets three Sammy Watkins games. That's what Duncan Robinson is. Duncan Robinson also might be a caliber of player at this point because this is the same case of the Duncan Robinson game with Jordan Poole. You may remember Jordan Poole. He also played at Michigan at the same time as Duncan Robinson. Jordan Poole found himself on su- on Saturday. Saturday night was Nuggets Warriors. That was a fun game by the way. I know the Warriors were winning all the way through, but watching Warriors offense even without Steph Curry was pretty cool. Jordan Poole, seven three-pointers on nine attempts. He started the game 7 for 7. Golden State Warriors beat up on Jokic cuz Jokic is the second best player is Will Barton, and the Nuggets don't have a chance to catch the Warriors, even if Steph Curry is coming off the bench because Steph Curry's battling injuries. Now, this is Jordan Poole's first playoff game, and Jordan Poole is a better player than Duncan Robinson. You know, Jordan Poole is the third-best player on the Warriors, or the fourth-best player on the Warriors, depending who you ask. Fourth-best player on the Warriors, as Duncan Robinson would probably be the fourth-best player on the Sacramento Kings. But Jordan Poole is in the camp of could be having a Duncan Robinson game because Jordan Poole undrafted second round or second round pick. I think from Michigan goes to the Warriors G League develops into a star plays a very specific role in the Warriors offense and has a Jordan Poole game, which is also like a Duncan Robinson game. 85% of the time, you forget that Jordan Poole is a major option for the team, and sometimes you remember, oh yeah, Jordan Poole, really good at basketball. Oh yeah, Duncan Robinson, really good shooter. Impact's winning. Gives you 27 points. The Duncan Robinson games are back, and it's very fun. It was very, very fun, unlike that terrible basketball the Jazz and Mavericks played on Saturday. Talking about and watching Duncan Robinson games and Jordan Poole games was very fun.
1: Garoppolo drops back to throw. You're gonna lose the game. The seasons come and seasons go. The Niners need a change. If you don't throw check downs, you're gonna take a sack. Jimmy G is warming up, yeah, he's your quarterback. No! Don't throw it, interceptions drive us all insane, phones are calling, Ron Rivera wants to make a trade, if a rookie QB isn't in your plans, just call San Francisco up, they got your quarterback. They say he's smart, and he wins games. That don't mean a thing. If since week one, Trey Lance had played, the 49ers would have had a ring. If your team's rebuilding, talent's what you lack. Trade two picks for Jimmy G, now he's your quarterback.
0: It is a Monday, and Mondays mean we gotta give our Jimmy Garoppolo updates, because every single Monday until Jimmy Garoppolo gets traded, we're going to marvel at just how silly and hilarious the 49ers quarterback situation is. And the development we have this week in the Jimmy Garoppolo sweepstakes is not the fact that Jimmy Garoppolo has potential suitors, or the fact that Baker Mayfield might end up going to the Carolina Panthers, despite the fact that both parties had quote-unquote mutual disinterest in each other last month it is that jimmy garoppolo is on his way out the door because trey lance has been informed that he is going to be the quarterback one for the san francisco 49ers which duh he should have been the quarterback one since week one of last year if you sit him for two years for jimmy garoppolo That really says something poor about Trey Lance and the San Francisco 49ers are trying to move Garoppolo at their greatest convenience, but there is no team willing to take on Garoppolo's contract. And as we talked about last week, they might guarantee Jimmy some money because his contract is fully not guaranteed right now. They could cut him and pay him $0. They might guarantee him some money to make it a little bit easier to trade his contract to one of these teams that needs a high-end backup or a low-end starter. I said uh, about in February, after all of this happened, after, I guess it would have been March, after the Cleveland Frowns, the Cleveland Clowns, or whatever we're going to call them, decided to trade for a sexual predator and give him the largest contract in the history of the NFL, that it was a game of musical chairs, and Jimmy Garoppolo and Baker Mayfield were fighting for one chair, and that one chair led to Ben McAdoo. And neither one of them wanted to sit down. Turns out that was way more true than I thought it was. Because Carolina is looking around right now. And I'm assuming that the Baker Mayfield to Carolina news popped up. And Robbie Anderson tweeted no to the idea of Baker Mayfield. I assume that's popping up because the Panthers don't like the quarterbacks in this rookie class. And with the sixth pick, they're going to go in a different direction. And they've kind of decided already they're going to go in a different direction, which I assume is why they're looking at the landscape of quarterbacks right now and why there's Baker Mayfield to Carolina news popping up or rumors. I guess it wouldn't be news. It would be rumors. But damn, if that ain't the truth, because Carolina's the last shitty spot for a quarterback to land and watch your career as a starter go and die. And Jimmy G and Baker Mayfield are sitting there, With 18 and 26 million dollar contracts and Carolina's got money and no quarterback they want to give it to because Carolina is a sad, sad franchise that if they'd followed our plan for rebuilding back in 2020, they, or I guess it would have been 2019, they would be much happier right now than the purgatory of sadness that they find themselves in playing musical chairs with Jimmy G and Baker Mayfield. So that's your Jimmy G update for this week. Trey Lance is going to be QB1. The 49ers have told him he's going to be QB1. And Baker Mayfield might be going to Carolina, ending the musical chairs between him and Jimmy G of who gets to quarterback the sad 6-11 Carolina Panthers. New sponsor alert. It's the good people over at CreditKarma.com. Sponsoring the Take It Easy podcast, Credit Karma can help you look for a low-interest personal loan that could help you save money while you pay off a purchase or pay down old credit card debt. Credit Karma compares loan offers for free, and it will not affect your credit score to use CreditKarma.com. If you're ready to apply, you can use the link in the description to this episode or head to creditkarma.com slash loanoffers to see your personalized offers. Again, that's creditkarma.com slash loanoffers to find the loan for you. Creditkarma.com slash loanoffers. Credit Karma, apply with more confidence today. Okay, so I purposely waited till after our quote-unquote A block and B block of the memes of the weekend to talk about the Brooklyn Nets and the Boston Celtics. And we're going to probably talk a lot about this series over the next two weeks because it's the one series that really feels like it matters. And you guys kind of got the gist of it during the first weekend, which was Bucks are going to win their series, looks like Philadelphia is going to win, Miami's going to win their series... Warriors, probably going to beat the Nuggets, although that one might be interesting. And as long as Luka Doncic is injured, Utah's going to win by semantics. Phoenix is going to destroy the, the New Orleans Pelicans. Um, I think there's one more series I'm forgetting here. Maybe not. Maybe that's all of them. Every single series. Oh, wait. Uh, Timberwolves and Grizzlies. Well, we love ourselves some Timberwolves, so that'll at least be interesting to talk about. But I assume NBA coverage is going to be pretty much around this Brooklyn and Boston series for the next two weeks. And by the way, with damn good reason. And it's not just because for some reason, every one of our friends on this podcast is a goddamn Celtics fan, whether it's Juju or whether it's Morgan from Australia or DSD. Like we talked a lot about the Celtics just because so many of our friends happen to be Boston Celtics fans on the show. It's kind of dumb how that one worked out, but whatever. This is the series that matters, and that game one was so much fun. It was the first basketball game in the NBA in, like, months that I watched the entire game. I guess I missed part of the first quarter, but, like, second quarter, third, and fourth. Gave two hours of my time to watch that full game, and it was amazing. Amazing. The basketball play was amazing. And this is even like Kevin Durant playing terribly in the first half. Like one of the things I talked with Juju about, and by the way, we're going to talk about the Nets and Celtics series a little bit. The, the guy from Locked On Nets joined us on the Slump Buster pod. So I thought I'd throw that in here while we're talking about Nets and Celtics as like an NBA playoff preview. Um, one of the things that I said is like Kevin Durant rarely ever has the bad game. Like, Kevin Durant rarely has the game that Carl Anthony Towns had in the first round of the playoffs. Or I guess, no, that would have been the play-in. Like, Trey Young had in game one against the Heat. Kevin Durant can get you a bucket and get you 25 points in his sleep. And Kevin Durant only had 23 points in this game. Kevin Durant shot 36% from the field. Like, Kevin Durant did not play a good basketball game And Kyrie Irving played amazing basketball. And that's the beauty of the Nets, right? Is when Kevin Durant isn't playing at his best, the Nets can still win as long as Kyrie Irving has an amazing game. It just means Kyrie steps up a little bit more to the plate. And they had the game in their grasp. It was 114 to 111. They had the game. Kyrie Irving hit the dagger shot with 40 seconds left to go. Like, it was in Brooklyn's control and they lost the game and they lost the game with bucket by Jalen Brown at the rim because they didn't want to foul possession where Boston plays the good defense everyone said all year Boston was known for they get a rebound they get the ball it at the end of the game Nets play double closeout defense Marcus Smart makes the pass to Tatum game winning layup oh my gosh everyone's going crazy that's how the game's gonna end and it's the way that if you had to pick a cliche way that the Boston Celtics were going to win, the team that like their offense is overly predicated on Jason Tatum, their offense works best when it's Jason Tatum and pretty much nobody else. When Jason Tatum's giving you 38 points a game and they play really stingy defense And like in this game, Marcus Smart's going to hit four threes and that's, you know, volume shooter Marcus Smart is going to be the thing that helps keep them in the game where Marcus Smart takes as many shots as Tatum or as many shots as Jalen Brown. That's the way they're going to try and score the ball, which is not great, but they're going to play great defense on even Kevin Durant, which again is not easy to do. (laughs) Like it's not easy to play great defense on Kevin Durant because even when you play great defense on Kevin Durant, Kevin Durant still gets buckets. And the only way to stop Kevin Durant is similar to how they played here, where Kevin Durant just misses his shots. And that's gonna happen. Everyone misses shots. And Kyrie Irving did not miss his shots. And that's the thing, is that to win a game easy against Brooklyn, you're gonna have to catch both of those guys on an off day because both of them are two of the ten two of the five two two of the five to ten best scorers in the NBA. And that's the thing that like The reason Brooklyn was favored in the series or the reason you're going to hear me say I still think the Nets are going to win the series. All of that stuff comes down to those two and it was so much fun to see the Celtics from a tie game at halftime go out and kick ass in the third quarter. Fall apart in the fourth with Kyrie... When Kevin Durant goes to the bench and they take like a 10-point lead and cut it to two because Kyrie Irving hits like eight straight points after giving the middle finger to Celtics fans and then hitting the double middle finger behind his head, it was crazy. It was crazy to see Kyrie Irving just lean into the total heel aspect. I don't know, intentionally or not intentionally. Like, I, I know, and this is overly simplistic here, like in doing the analysis... I know that when I get hangry, sometimes they're prone to make moments like that. Kyrie Irving's going through the Ramadan cycle. Kyrie Irving is do, like doesn't like playing in Boston, which is the reason I think he's only played like twice in Boston since he left 3 years ago. Like it's a really really interesting thing to talk about if we want to talk about fans being bad or fans being overly passionate as they like to call it which gives them a reason to just be rude to Kyrie Irving combined with the fact that Kyrie Irving is already dislikable because he's a weirdo and because he doesn't get vaccinated it's really interesting if we want to do that cycle but I don't want to do that right now I just kind of want to marvel at the basketball because we've done the other Kyrie Irving podcasts before Kyrie Irving was so freaking good and leaning into the heel aspect, and it made it so entertaining to watch at home. Because again, before the end of the game became the storyline, I was fascinated by the fact that Kyrie Irving, with Kevin Durant on the bench, took them from down 10 to down 2, and the Nets immediately took the lead with Kevin Durant's only 3-pointer of the game. It felt like Kevin Durant was disappointing in the second half, and he still had 17 points. And it was just he had such a bad first half that it it felt like the Nets just needed like a bare minimum average Kevin Durant game instead of a below average to bad Kevin Durant game. And by the way, a bad Kevin Durant game is different than other people having bad games. Like a Rudy Gobert bad game is different from a Kevin Durant bad game. The bad Kevin Durant game is he only gives you 24 when he's the volume shooter in your offense and he should get 24 every game. Like how Donovan Mitchell had 32 for Utah in game one against Dallas, but he took 29 shots and had two points basically in the first 18 minutes of the game. That's where Boston can get the two games from a Brooklyn team. And it was really, really interesting to watch happen because... Kyrie Irving had the game. Like, Kyrie Irving can give you 40 points a game almost any given night, the same way Kevin Durant can. Like, the difference is Kevin Durant's a foot taller than Kyrie Irving, and Kyrie Irving's more of a finesse player. But Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, like we said, two of the five to 10 best scorers in the league, where when you need a bucket, they can get you a bucket except for the one at the very end of the game, except for the fact that Kyrie Irving did hit the game-winning shot. They just didn't get the double stop at the end of the game. And, you know, you flip a coin at the end of that. Like Marcus Smart makes one pass and they win the game. And the storyline, by the way, if you want to draw the storyline here, because I think this is a dumb way to do that amazing game is talking about only the last play, the same way I hate when people bemoan the calls of the referees that takes away from a game that had so many different tosses and turns. Like we could talk about Jalen Brown getting an elbow to the nose and having to stop the game because he was bleeding into his mouth. Or we could talk about even that play where at Brooklyn, all four players ran down to the end of the floor and Kyrie had nobody to check the ball into. And instead of calling a timeout, he threw a turnover that immediately led to two points for the Celtics. Or you could talk about the fact that the Celtics were up 15 and Kyrie hit five consecutive shots to take that 10 point lead down to a two point lead and you could we could talk about all that stuff that was super interesting even up to the point where Brooklyn fouls Claxton or I'm sorry Boston fouls Claxton on the five on four after Jalen Brown takes an elbow to the nose it's all in there for storylines to talk about and if you want to draw a storyline from this if you want to craft the Celtic specific narrative I'm going to give you the ammunition. If you are listening to this and you want to create if you're listening to this Morgan or you're listening to this Cam or you're listening to this Juju and you want to create craft the Celtic narrative, the perfect Celtic narrative coming off of Jason Tatum's first game-winning buzzer beater of his 6-year NBA career that makes him one of the second or third tier stars of his generation at the end of the game Jason Tatum backdoors Kevin Durant because with three seconds left, it looks like Marcus Smart is going to take the game-winning shot. And Marcus Smart gets the ball to Tatum, mid-stride spin moves on Kyrie Irving, and with one second left, wins the game, while Kevin Durant is standing there with his back turned to Jason Tatum. If you want to craft that story arc... It's right there for the taking. That would do a disservice to one, the fact that these series are really, really long and these series really, really have ebbs and flows to them. They're, not all the games are going to be as close as this one. Like, even the best of the best series in basketball have games that are blowouts or are 10 point games. I mean, every other game this weekend was not close except for the, the Brooklyn-Boston game. So not every Brooklyn-Boston game is going to be this close, but there's going to be ebbs and flows because Jason Tatum can single-handedly get you a game if you're the Boston Celtics. The night that he is on his game, he can single-handedly get you a game. The same way Kyrie Irving can single-handedly get you a game, and the way Kevin Durant can get you any single game single-handedly by himself. And this is really, really interesting because also, if you're trying to be optimistic and you're a Boston Celtics fan, like the Celtics gave you exactly what you want from that, which is you win game one on your home floor, and it was an average Jason Tatum game. Like it was average performance by Jason Tatum. He finishes with 31 and 8. And he gets the game winner that we'll all remember. But Jason Tatum averaged like 33 points a game, or at least close to that, during that bubble run in 2020. Like the Boston, this was an average Tatum game. He shot 50% from the field, he shot 40% from three, he got to the free throw line more than anyone in the entire game. Like that was an average Jason Tatum game. You could point to that and say Jason Tatum could repeat that every single game of the series and you wouldn't be surprised. Now again, like I know everyone wants to build off the Jason Tatum arc and people want to kind of like at least the the Celtics fans in my life. And maybe I'm spending too much time around Celtics fans cuz again, like 40 to 50% of our basketball related friends of the show happen to be Boston Celtics fans. And so I find myself aggressively having to rein in the Celtics fans. But Jason Tatum could do 31 8 and 4 eight assists, four rebounds, every single game, shooting 50% from the field and 40% from three and getting to the free throw line 12 times. Like, we would point to that and say, yeah, that's that's something Jason Tatum could definitely do every single game. Not that he will do it every single game, but if Jason Tatum averaged 31, four rebounds and eight assists, shooting 50% in the series, we'd all say, that's that's kind of what a top 10 player does in these types of situations. And Jason Tatum was awesome towards the end of the game. I think the the reason the Celtics win this, like are in a position to even get there in the first place is because Marcus Smart hit all those three-pointers in the third quarter and they got on a run where Kevin Durant wasn't really able to kind of kill the run. The Celtics, I think, had like a 10-0 run somewhere in there that kind of boosted their lead the same way Brooklyn came back with a 13-0 run because that's just basketball. Like it works both ways there. And I think that run in the third quarter is something that Brooklyn or Boston can do like four times in seven games, like get a run that keeps the game close at the end where they have as many. Because Brooklyn can get that run every single game. like By virtue of having Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, you can go on one of those runs every game where you're like 15 to 2 or 40 to 20 like they did against the Cavs in the play-in game. And like all of a sudden... Now the lead is almost insurmountable even as the other team like slowly gets back into it. It's that one long run or those two long runs that separate the game for you. Brooklyn does that every game. It's why Brooklyn's so good when Kevin Durant and Kyrie are there. If you look at Boston, the, the thing you can be optimistic about is this is a replicable game in terms of their offensive production. And that's kind of cool, right? Like You can do this again and again. And be able to win the series. These two teams are super evenly matched, and the reason I said Nets and Six originally, which you'll hear me talk about there, is like this is a this is a toss-up series, and I believe in the power of the superstars who are both better score or both as good of scorers as Jason Tatum. Because while we say like Tatum can average thirty-one, eight, and four for a series, and we wouldn't be surprised. People think that that's really, really good and it is really, really good. It's just playoff numbers get warped because minutes expand longer and your offense is more run through the star players because that's what's dictated at the end of the game. It's like how playoff football changes from regular season football or anything like that. Like All the strategy changes when you have to win a short-term game instead of the long season. It's why I say the NBA regular season is irrelevant and... The playoffs are super relevant. So, case in point, Kevin Durant during the 2017 finals run for the Warriors averaged 37.5 points per game in the finals. Giannis during last year's championship run averaged 35 points and 12 rebounds during that championship run. So Jason Tatum giving you 31, 8, and 4. Every single game makes Jason Tatum a really, really good basketball player and one who also historically loses to the 37 point a game guy, which by the way, Kevin Durant didn't have a good game in game one. Now that's your problem for Boston is that the next game, Kevin Durant goes for 45 and you've got literally no chance, but that's going to happen no matter what. Kevin Durant will single handedly win you every single game if he's on. The only way you beat Kevin Durant is just Kevin Durant missing shots. The only way you beat Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving is both of them missing shots or one of them misses shots and your star plays awesome. Or if you have a star as good as Kevin Durant, which only two teams in the NBA have right now in Jokic, but his team is bad because his second best player is Aaron Gordon And so even Jokic can't even beat the teams that have two very good players. And Giannis, and I guess Embiid to a certain extent, Embiid too in the mix there. Like, if you don't have one of those guys who give you 35 and 10 every single game, that is something that changes the math here. And this is all like series preview type stuff. But coming off of that game, it's so interesting to talk about how this is going to play out for both of those teams. Because again, what we saw in Game 1 is replicable for the Boston Celtics. And if you're a Boston Celtics fan, you can get yourself excited about this storyline. Like, you have hope that that you can win this series. You knew going in you could win the series. Now you've seen a little bit of proof because you withstanded one of Kyrie Irving's best punches. I, I saw the whole debate going around of who's a better player right now, Kyrie Irving or Jason Tatum. I think all of that is a little bit of semantics because both of them are capable of giving you a game or two games just by themselves. The same way Jimmy Butler did in the finals for the Miami heat and in the conference finals against Boston in 2020, like those dudes are your second tier star caliber players good enough to single-handedly swing series against similarly caliber players. The great edge for Brooklyn is Kevin Durant. And even in a game where Kevin Durant played terrible by Durant standards, like I know in the end he had 24 points, but where Durant shoots 36% from the field and 20% from three, they still almost won the game. They still almost stole one from Boston, where if the Nets had held on, if the dagger that Kyrie Irving hits stays for 40 seconds and they don't give up, two baskets at the rim in the last 40 seconds of the game, they win. Like they steal a game from Boston where Kevin Durant played poorly. And the good news for them is that when Kevin Durant plays poorly, Kyrie Irving can also play amazing, including during Ramadan where he hasn't eaten or drank water in like 20, uh, not like 18 hours. He could even play that well and they still can't win the game. And Boston can get you a game if both of them play poorly. The odds of both of them playing poorly, slim to none. If both of them play amazing, Boston's got no chance. Like, it's that simple no matter how the defensive inefficiencies work for Brooklyn, no matter how solid Boston is defensively. If Durant and Irving both are on, Boston has no chance. But that's not going to happen every single game. It's just more likely Durant's going to be on than any other player in the sport and Kyrie Irving is as likely to be on as Jason Tatum and that's the great equalizer in the series maybe Jalen Brown has a 40 point game that just surprises us the way Tyler Hero had a 38 point game in game 6 against Boston in the bubble or the way that uh, what was it? Mike Bridges, I think, in the conference finals had like 28 points in a game or even the Duncan Robinson game like we talked about in the first segment. Like maybe something weird like that happens, something totally unexpected happens in one of these games and it swings the series. Maybe Marcus Smart hitting all those shots is that swing there, like three players scoring 20 points for the Celtics is just enough to combat either Durant or Kyrie being off. And I'm really, really interested to see how these next few games play out. Because Boston's going to win one of these games by a blowout. Brooklyn's going to win at least two of these games by a blowout. Unless they kind of like have an injury or something weird happen. And I'm really interested to see what happens in those other three games. Because instead of the Nets stealing a game from, Brooke, from Boston and being up potentially 3-1 at the end of this trip. Now it could be 2-2. Now if one weird thing happens in a small sample size, it could be 3-1 Boston. I have no idea exactly how it's going to play out. I just know the probabilities are Boston's going to win one game by blowout. Brooklyn's going to win two games. One by like comfortable victory and one probably by a blowout. And the other two to three games going to be really, really interesting to see what happens. And I hope they're as exciting as... As game one, because that was the most fun basketball game I have watched since game six of the NBA finals back in 2021, which was so cool because I was so freaking happy for Giannis and so mesmerized by a 50-point triple double, or was it 50 triple double or 50 and 10 in the finals? Game six, the flamingo leg. Oh, it was so amazing. And this was the most fun I've had watching basketball since that game. And that's just because the regular season is irrelevant. And it was amazing to finally have stakes and storylines to draw into. This Boston-Brooklyn series is going to be the one that matters. Because Philadelphia is going to win that series against Toronto. Golden State's going to beat the Nuggets, although it might be a little bit interesting. If Luka's injured, no chance against the, the, (laughs) I saw they were advertising game two of that series today for Monday, and it's had Jalen Brunson as the Mavericks best player. I was just like, oh God, it was like, watch Donovan Mitchell versus Jalen Brunson. I was like, oh, okay, Utah's going to win that series. So yeah, like Luka being injured takes away the intrigue of that series, which was going to be super fun. Milwaukee's going to kick the Chicago Bulls ass uh, Phoenix is going to beat up on the New Orleans Pelicans um what is the other series i'm missing oh Miami's going to win that series even though the Hawks will probably win one game like all, six of the seven other series are already formally decided and you can watch them for the entertainment of the playoff versions of some of these players but we're really just waiting for second round matchups which by the way is okay it's better to have The second round matchups be the incredibly intense ones than the first round matchups as long as we get the one to two that we can draw storylines from which it's looking like 100% Brooklyn Boston and the other one is our beloved Timber Pups against the Memphis Grizzlies apparently that's the other one that you can get super intrigued by but Brooklyn and Boston is really really fun because it's the playoff intensity that we're going to get in both of the Eastern Conference series is in the second round with Milwaukee and Brooklyn and or Brooklyn or Boston. I still think Brooklyn is going to win the series. Miami or Brooklyn or Boston or uh, Milwaukee or Philadelphia. All of those series are going to be super duper fun. Utah and Phoenix, eh. Memphis and Golden State. Interesting enough, those Eastern Conference series are going to be so fun because they're all great and they're all super evenly matched. We're getting that taste of it with Brooklyn and Boston because both of those teams are super evenly matched. And Boston winning game one just makes the series all the more interesting because I don't—I it would be less likely that Brooklyn is going to win four out of five against Boston than them winning four out of six, which is what they have to do now. But Brooklyn can definitely win 4 out of 6. 4 out of 5 is a bit much. So if I'm going to roll with Nets in 6, I'm going to say less likely. But I'm also not going to be prisoner of the moment in that way. Again, Boston now is going to get 1 more to get to 2. Brooklyn's going to get 2 because of the power of Kevin Durant and, and Kyrie Irving both being on at the same time. It's going to get to 2-2. Two, two. Or it's going to be 3-1 or 3-2 or whatever it is. Like The timing of the series might be weird. Both of them can get to two wins. Boston's already got the one that was the most difficult, which is avoiding collapsing at the end of the game where Kevin Durant doesn't play well. It's going to be interesting to see how the other ones work out. And as we figure out how these other games work out, let's just go back, pretend like we didn't watch the first game of that series, and now let's kind of preview it a little bit with our friend Sports and the co-host of the Locked on Nets podcast. By the way, just so you guys know, his name is Adam Armbrecht. Adam Armbrecht co-hosts the Locked on Nets podcast. And uh, yeah, I guess this is like an informal
2: series preview for Nets and Celtics. He's always done in his career, even for Brooklyn. So yes, you know, Kyrie Irving is one of, if not the the most gifted offensive player in the NBA today. So yeah, he can get into his bag as often as he wants to. It's just going to be a question of, can the players around him and Kevin Durant serve their roles to make sure you don't have some of these big runs like we saw against the Cavs?
0: Well, so how do you feel about the Durant and Kyrie performances from yesterday and leading up to the end of the season? Because obviously everyone points to the the perfect shooting night for Kyrie Irving. I thought it was great how he got to the free throw line a whole bunch in the game, which made it easy that even when the Cavs started going on runs, Brooklyn still kept the lead there. So how do you feel about the performances they had in a, you know, like a game six type of feel in the play in game?
2: Yeah, it's funny because neither Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving are really players that look to draw contact. You know, one of the best attributes attributes about Kyrie is his ability to avoid contact from the defense and have those circus finishes in and around the basket. Kevin Durant, you go inside that line there. He ends up giving you assists, rebounds. He got to the line, double digits in this one. He gives you a very balanced stat sheet. One of the things down the stretch, the Nets won the last four games of the season to make sure they got that seventh seed in the play-in and had that home court advantage. Was that Kyrie was struggling a little bit from the field. Now he observes Ramadan, which means fasting throughout the day and into the evening. So there's an impact there from him. There's also the ramping up and playing on a night in, night out basis after coming back, just 29 games played this season. So there are these little wrinkles that you're looking at and saying, can they do this every single game over the course of a series? Kevin Durant can do that because what Kevin Durant did in the Cavs game and what we've seen from him late in the year was. You tell me when, when do I need to step up, get to my spot? And his spot is anywhere on the court and knock down a few shots to really put away a team. That's exactly what he did against the Cavs. Kyrie Irving, like any pure scorers, you can have some of these ups and downs. The question will become... Seth Curry, who had an absolutely quiet 34-minute performance. You didn't have Dragic, really, because he was coming back from the protocols. These are the couple of players, offensively, that'll just need to toe the line when Kyrie takes the first quarter to get into rhythm, when he doesn't go 12 for 12 to start a game. But these are superstar players. This is exactly what you expect them to do. We, we said in the postgame, if the Nets and specifically Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving didn't do exactly what they did in that game, didn't give you those performances, even if they won, you'd be saying, boy, this is a concern going into the series against Boston. Instead, they were you how good they are and it's what gives you confidence going into this matchup with uh, the celtics
3: obviously the nets are one of the most polarizing teams i've ever seen the lowest seeded nba team to ever win a championship was the 1995 rockets as a sixth seed obviously the nets now coming in as a seven seed yet vegas still has them as the second best team out of the eastern conference uh do you think that the nets can basically buck this trend and win an nba championship this season
2: yeah, I mean, listen, I think if we're, if we're being honest, they're not a true seven seed, right? It's why some teams like the Celtics were were jockeying to try to either match up with or avoid playing them in the first round of the playoffs like the Bucs were doing as well. The 76ers wanted to specifically avoid them. The one thing it does is it makes the road that much more difficult, right? If they're going to go into this series and beat Boston, then you're going to match up against Miami or against Milwaukee or against the 76ers at some point here, right? So you're going to end up getting three of the most difficult matches matchups in order to get yourself to the nba finals do i think they can do it yes does it come down to if they have sustained health 100 because seth curry's coming off this bum ankle going to have four days of rest here before the series starts. Again, Dragic had a protocols. Just making sure that everybody is able to give everything that they have, which we've seen from guys like Bruce Brown, guys like Nicholas Claxton. That's what's key. To say nothing of the speculation around Ben Simmons and what that would mean for their chances. But when you come into a series against Boston, started out with actually the Nets being favored before going slightly into Boston's direction, mostly because they have four home games in this series. That's, I think, indicative of... Of of where this seed is in terms of the ability to move through the playoffs. You don't see seven and eight seeds being even money or odds on favorites to win a first-round matchup. So let's talk about Ben Simmons a
0: little bit now because according to Jeff Goodman, it looks like there's a chance Ben Simmons plays game one in Boston on it's either Saturday or Sunday. I'm not sure which day it it's is. Sunday but afternoon, yeah. If that's the case, how are you feeling about that? I think that. Adding Ben Simmons can't possibly be a negative, and so it should improve Brooklyn's chances in some capacity, even if we haven't seen Ben Simmons since the infamous Game 7 versus the Hawks at this point. Um, How are you feeling about seeing him play for the Brooklyn Nets, possibly here in the first round?
2: Yeah, we, we've we reserved expectations around that. I mean, you can go back over the last month and a half and hear the speculation, the what could be. He's ramping up. He's on the court. He's doing one-on-one drills. He hasn't touched a basketball. He's playing five-on-five. His back, you know, he's getting epidurals and he's getting shots and he's not going to be able to play at all. Like all of these things have, have swung the pendulum so violently leading up to the playoffs. We don't set a high bar of saying game one, he's out there on the court. Now, if at any point he can step on the court for Brooklyn, the first thing that you can, I think, think comfortably set the expectations for are defensively. Now he's 6'11". We know he can guard every single position that takes something off of Kevin Durant's plate. It takes an assignment at the guard spot off of Kyrie Irving's plate. And then just the defensive presence that he provides to you. So that's the first thing that I think he can automatically contribute regardless of how much the minute shares are, whether it's 10 to 15, which I think is, would be the reasonable expectation or something more than that offensively. And you saw a little bit of this in the Cavs game too. Bruce Brown has become an all around player for the Brooklyn Nets over the second half of the season since the trade, essentially. And one of the things that they did was put that ball in his hands and allow him to make the secondary and third reads, find open looks for guys like Nick Claxton, get it back out to the stars. That's what Ben Simmons can do. He is a table setter on the offensive end. So to say nothing about whether or not he can be running the floor on fast breaks and getting at the rim and worrying about if his shot is good or not and what happens at the foul line, he can do that at a minimum and that will continue to open up and provide what the Nets tried to accomplish in the moves they made in the hardened trade floor spacing and shooters around the stars to help them be as dangerous as possible. So, you know, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, Ben Simmons with Seth Curry and Goran Dragic or Bruce Brown, guys that can all shoot. That, that That's all you want is floor spacing and opportunities. And Ben Simmons, at the very least, has proven to be a high level defensive player and a very adept facilitator on the offensive end.
3: I agree with you that it could help in certain respects. I mean, obviously, huge gain to the uh, Nets defense. But the last time we did see Ben Simmons... Haka Ben was in full effect um, Mm -hmm. against the Atlanta Hawks. Regardless of how ready he is, can steve nash afford to have him in any closing lineups that was one of doc river's big debates in that series last year
2: yeah and i think it's interesting just because from the health standpoint right if he was capable of going 25 30 minutes well maybe the question is a little bit bigger that would be that he would be a part of the death lineup for brooklyn if everyone was 100 healthy and you would quote unquote live with the hack event scenario and i think the nets could navigate around that but because you have a player like bruce brown because you see nicholas claxton and andre drummond who also would have his issues at the foul line as with claxton but you can go into we've seen opportunities especially when you look at boston and you say they don't have the time lord available defensively so can the nets afford to late in games go small ball and play kevin durant in the five and surround him with shooters and have bruce brown who's a high defensive player as well on the court 100 percent? and then you just mitigate you know bruce brown is a near 80 percent shooter from the free throw line so you can keep him out there in these closing lineups even if Ben Simmons were to come back, you could avoid putting him into really high leverage, high pressure scenarios early on and just see where it goes from there. That's why, again, I keep coming back to. When he's on the court, great, we'll take it from there, but everything leading up to it, you just keep assessing what they have on the court and what their chances are with who they know for a fact will be playing in the series.
1: Well,
0: you mentioned Bruce Brown, and he talked about after the game is attacking the undersized bigs of the Celtics, possibly working to their favor. And you know that requires having Seth Curry here and having shooters spread out across the floor. How do you feel about the matchup going into Boston, kind of the how the Nets and what their team looks like with two offensive players who can give you a bucket, almost whenever they want and the rest of the team kind of built to those two players how do you feel about that matched up against the celtics who like you mentioned they don't have robert williams but still one of the better defensive teams in the nba at the very least
2: Oh, and listen. I mean, you know, Kevin Durant followed up Bruce Brown's comments with, "Yeah, he doesn't need to be saying that. Let's just go out and ball." Like you're trying to look across the court and say, "Well, there's diminished value here." You know, we can really take advantage of it. And I think he labeled them as being the same type of player in Tice, and you talk about Al Horford, but they're still presenting problems for you. You know, Nicholas Claxton is a great switchable defender, but Al Horford, at this stage of his career, is still very capable of of driving at the lane, forcing the issue against Drummond or Claxton, and maybe drawing fouls, shooting from the perimeter. So if you're looking at it from the Nets perspective, well, Nicholas Claxton can go out there, but Andre Drummond can't. So you're going to see that chess match between when Tice is on the floor and you say, well, now go bang bodies now fight for those rebounds. So, there's still issues there. Marcus Smart is one of my favorite players to watch on another team and hate watching him on another team for how tenacious he is. He's going to dig in defensively and create a few problems. But I mean, it's high level here. Jason Tatum is playing the best basketball of his career. MA Doku, former coach on the Brooklyn Nets staff, has, has kind of reshaped this roster and their mentality of how they play basketball. So th- this is high level. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant. What do those matchups look like on a possession-to-possession basis? And again, I think it comes down to how many possessions can you buy for Kevin Durant defensively where he's not taking on the Jason Tatum challenge necessarily. Doesn't mean he won't. And Kevin Durant has shown he's playing at as high level defensively as he is offensively, but over a seven game series, the Nets had to do everything down the stretch here to secure that playing spot. You, you want to try to alleviate it. At the very least, Boston's two stars are the two younger players out of, out of this group of four, right? So you think that their legs are going to be as fresh as possible. It's going to be a good series. I, it really is. There's going to be challenges. I don't think that Jason Tatum is a guy you go, oh, we'll shut him down or take him away. You're going to have to live with him, and what he's getting for you. And it just comes down to, to me, exposing the secondary matchups. I mentioned how good Marcus Smart is defensively. He can be streaky on the offensive end. So how the Nets choose to work those matchups, the Goran Dragic kind of secondary battles. Will they use Smart against Seth Curry to take him out of rhythm? And then can a guy like Bruce Brown continue to shoot at a high level from the perimeter as he has down the stretch? There's a lot of kind of sub battles here that are going to kind of sway on a game-to-game basis. What happens?
3: Moment of truth, Adam. What is your prediction for the series?
2: You always default to best players in the series. And I would say that the Brooklyn Nets have two slide Jason Tatum in between, you know Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, that's more than reasonable. I absolutely love his game, but I I just think that the Nets do they do have the better tandem. Let's put it that way, and I think that they will get over this hump here. Um, I'm mildly comfortable saying in six. I will not be at all shocked if it takes seven on the road in Boston to get this job done because it's just Boston is too well coached of a team. They're too fundamental, and again, Brown and, and Tatum are just peaking in their careers at the perfect right moment here. This is not first round matchup from last year's playoffs. This is a different version of the Boston Celtics. It's going to be a battle and a test. And it may just come down to how does the series start and whether or not you steal that, that road game, right? How those games play out early in this series are really going to dictate who can win. But I'm going to take the Brooklyn Nets in six or seven.
3: Kyle, what about you?
2: Uh, same boat. I would say six or seven for
0: the Nets to get it done because Jason Tatum can get you at least one game. That is very much a guarantee there. Jason Tatum will get you one game in the series. I don't know which game, but he'll have a 45 pointer and he can buy himself beat the Brooklyn Nets even on a good night from Kevin Durant. So you can have that working in your favor. Brooklyn, same case, like having Kevin Durant changes everything in the series and that ability to give you a bucket whenever you need a bucket. Like no Disrespect to Jason Tatum, like he does some of that too. It's just another level when we're talking about Kevin Durant, when you literally cannot guard Kevin Durant. We've been seeing that across like 10 to 11 years of basketball. He's just too long, too tall, and maybe one of the best scorers in the history of the NBA, if not the best scorer in the NBA, at least that I've seen in my lifetime. So Props to Kevin Durant there.
2: And by the way, I was throwing this extra stat because I was looking at it uh, as the season was winding down. Kevin Durant went for his third highest career point total, just under 30. He went for his fourth highest field goal percentage this season. He went for his fifth highest in trips to the free throw line, career high 91% there. So in his 14th NBA season, Kevin Durant is doing some of his best work of his career and peaking at the right time. So it's a big matchup. It's a fun one though, man. It's going to be a really good series. This is what you want to start the playoffs.
3: All right, it's clear that I'm going to be on an island here. And yes, Kevin Durant, yes, Kyrie Irving, these guys are incredibly hard to defend. But a lot of people think that the Celtics are a smoke and mirror act when it comes to this defense. No, they are a very well-fundamental team they always contest shots. They always keep in front. They're perfect on switching. And I think that that is going to be a big part of the series. Sometimes defending a shot against Kyrie and Kevin Durant isn't enough. You could have perfect defense on them and they'll still get their shots. But the fact that the Celtics are able to switch on guys so easily, it's going to make it hard for that third, fourth, fifth score in Brooklyn's lineup. Who's going to be that next guy that steps up? Is it going to be Seth Curry on that gimpy ankle? Is it going to be Ben Simmons? coming off this injury. And then that comes into the offensive side for the Boston Celtics. Okay, Jason Tatum, who's who's on him? How's that going to work? If Ben Simmons decides to go on him, coming off a back injury, that might be a big point of arrogance for the Nets to insert a guy into a playoff run. And I, I think, and not necessarily you, Adam, not necessarily you, Kyle, but I think there's a certain level of arrogance in saying, we have KD, we have Kyrie, we're just going to roll past the Celtics. The Celtics are a good team. I know this is not a traditional second for seven seed matchup, but there are reasons the Celtics wore a 50 win second seed in the Eastern Conference. And that's because they have good players up and down their lineup. Uh, yes, we can debate the order of the top four players in this series. Obviously, Kevin Durant is one. I won't dispute that. Jason Tatum to me is two, Kyrie, Jalen Brown. But when we start getting that fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth guy, ninth guy, 10th guy, in ranking each team's rosters. I think this is where the Celtics start to pull away a little bit, and that's why it's gonna be a hard-fought series. It's gonna be a series that has my heart beating out of my chest most of the time, but I'm gonna take my Boston Celtics in seven